Well, good morning, Harvest Ottawa. Pastor Ray here. And right now I have the tremendous privilege of introducing to you our guest preacher this morning. His name is Ted Duncan, and Ted is a very dear friend of mine, and he serves as the senior pastor for Harvest Bible Chapel Mississauga, formerly known as Harvest Bible Chapel Brampton. And I had the great privilege of serving for three years under Pastor Ted on staff with him, and he has become a very dear friend of mine and a mentor for me in my own pastoral ministry. So would you please give Pastor Ted, his wife Lindsay, and their four boys, a warm Harvest Ottawa welcome. I know you're going to be blessed this morning. Thanks so much for that warm welcome. So thankful to be here. We love this church. I've already been invited to Thanksgiving dinner by two different families already. So I'm not sure how we're going to decide. No, we're actually not going anywhere. Uh, we're going to spend some time together as a family. But thank you so much for the warm welcome. It's so great uh, to be back here. Thank you so much to the, uh, to the worship team, particularly Josh. We've been, I'm prayer partners with Ray on a weekly basis. We've been praying for you for like months. It took you forever to get here. But God's timing is perfect. And so thankful to actually be here, uh, to be led uh, in, uh, in worship here by you and to be together with the with the. The, the body of Christ, the broader extended uh, church family here at Harvest Ottawa. So right now, Pastor Ray is preaching at our church and uh, really, really uh, thankful and excited about that. And so he's preaching in a brand new location uh, for us. We just moved, we just moved just over the Brampton border across into Mississauga because God has been doing uh, amazing uh, things. There was a, there was a, a closet millionaire uh, uh, in our uh, church family, we didn't know that they were a millionaire. We don't know if they still are a millionaire because they gave us $5 million uh, to, uh, to put a down payment on a building completely out of nowhere. God stirred that family's heart uh, uh, to do that. And so we've moved into a new facility. Let me tell you a story. A couple of, uh, uh, last week actually, not a couple of days ago, just last week, I walk into our church building and uh, something, doesn't, something doesn't feel right. And the worship team's rehearsing. And uh, I look closely and the choir members are all wearing mittens and the one girl who sings on the worship team she's literally wrapped in a blanket like this and just kind of leaning into her microphone during worship rehearsal you see everything looked fine Uh, the, the 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 chairs were all in place and the lights were on but the furnace was broken you know it's interesting if I were to take a picture of the building and say, hey, would you want to worship there? You might be, oh, yeah, sure, that'd be great. But if I told you that there's no heat on in that building, you'd, you'd second guess. You see, everything looks fine on the outside, but the, but, but the atmosphere, the way you felt when you were in that place was not right because there was no heat. And that got me thinking about a quote from Leonard Ravenhill. He said, let the fires go out in the boiler room. It's kind of an antiquated quotation, but a boiler, you know, the the furnace. Let the fires go out in the boiler room of the church. And the place will still look smart and clean, but it will be cold. The prayer room is the boiler room for its spiritual life. I want to talk today about the importance of prayer. 
the importance of prayer in keeping a church fired up, creating an atmosphere of warmth and growth. And I want to motivate us today to pray from the book of Hebrews chapter 4. So you can turn in your Bibles there. If you don't have a Bible, our awesome ushers are coming up and down the hallway, or up and down the aisle right now to, um, they can go to the hallways too if anyone needs a Bible out there, um, up and down the aisle right now to pass out Bibles who, uh, to people who might have left theirs at home. If you don't own a Bible, this is our uh, gift uh, to you. What I want uh, to, to do uh, for you today is I, I want to give the application just kind of right at the beginning, okay? Um, sometimes uh, pastors, you know, wait for the application point right until the very end. I want to give it to you right from the very beginning. The application, what, I'm, what, I'm, what God's word is calling you to do practically and specifically in your life is to attend the October 17th prayer night that Curtis mentioned during announcements, okay? That's the application. That's where we're headed. It's my aim w- through, through the spirit and the word of God to motivate you to, to come out to the prayer meeting. Now, there's lots of ways that you can motivate someone to pray. And I've read lots of books on prayer. I've heard all kinds of sermons on prayer. I've preached all kinds of sermons on prayer. There's all kinds of different angles that you can take. You can try to motivate people by guilt and say, well, how much time do you spend watching TV? How much time do you spend on Facebook? And how much time do you, do you spend on praying? And yeah, guilt is a pretty effective motivator for about five minutes. I can motivate you with historical stories. Hudson Taylor got up at four in the morning every day to pray. George Mueller never sent a support letter. All he did was pray. I can encourage you with, with, with other examples. But really, when you compare those examples to yourself, what do you end up with? More guilt. More five minutes of motivation. And so what, what I want to do to motivate you as a church family to be committed to the pillar of prayer, what I want to do is point you to the ultimate and really the only foundation, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the reason why we can pray. In Jesus' name is not just a tag that we put on the end of our prayers, it is the very foundation of prayer itself. We've got the pillars of harvest here, unapologetic preaching, unashamed worship, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness. Listen, a pillar is pointless if it's not grounded in the foundation. And so the author of Hebrews, as we come to chapter 4, he had already talked about how the word of God is the sword of the spirit, how it's living and active. And then, so that's God speaking to us through his word, but then he wants to motivate the people not simply to hear God speaking to them through his word, he wants them to be speaking to God through prayer. And he motivates them in their prayer life by lifting high the name of God. Jesus by declaring who he is and what he has done. So today we're going to be looking at how Jesus Christ, his person and his work, motivates his church to pray to his Father in his name. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning at verse 14, it says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. And here's the prayer application. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help 
in a time of need. I want to talk about two ways, two ways that Christ as our high priest motivates us to pray. And and here's the first one. We pray because our high priest encourages us to hold on to what we believe. He encourages us to hold on to what we believe. And I I want you to, to zero in on right now and even circle in your Bible the last word in verse 14. Do you see that word? It's the word confession. Now, We normally have a very narrow, limited understanding of what the word confession means. We think about confession in terms of admitting your sin, acknowledging to God that you've stumbled, that you've fallen. And and if you have a Roman Catholic background, that's sort of, you know, stepping into that sort of awkward little phone booth and having a a priest on the other side and you go to, to make a confession. And listen, what confession simply means is to state the truth. And so, yeah, we confess our sin. If we've sinned, if it's true that we've sinned, then we make a confession. But making a confession is a statement of truth, but it's not limited to sinful behavior. Here at Harvest Bible Chapel, I'm sure you can get one at the welcome desk or online, we we have a doctrine statement. Some churches call their doctrine statement a confession of faith. It's what we believe to be true. And so the author of Hebrews here is saying he, he, he wants us to hold fast to our confession. Now the English Standard Version, is a, it's, a, it's a wonderful translation of the Bible, but it's a little bit antiquated. We don't really use hold fast in everyday language. When, when, when we think of the word fast, we think about moving quickly. Like hold fast. Like No, that's not what it's saying. That's saying like hold it quickly. How do you hold something quickly? No, think about fasten. Hold something and don't let go of it. Fasten yourself to your confession, to what you believe about God. If there were like a mixtape or a Spotify playlist for the book of Hebrews, it would be, don't stop believing. That's the, that's the overall theme, to hold on to your confession. Don't go back. You see, the, the, the Hebrews who were receiving this letter from this anonymous author, and I gotta be really clear here, I gotta, I, I gotta make a confession because it's probably gonna happen. Uh, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, okay? And, uh, but because the book of Hebrews is a letter and because the, the apostle Paul wrote most of the letters in the New Testament, probably at some point I'm gonna say Paul said or Paul wrote. And, and, and so I just wanna get that out of the way. Um, so I apologize in advance if I refer to the anonymous author of Hebrews as, as Paul, but I don't wanna talk about the author so much as the recipients. These were Jewish Christians, people who were born into Jewish homes. They were ethnically and culturally Jewish in every way and they were struggling with the temptation of being drawn back into their broader culture drawn back back to their roots of how they were raised drawn back to live the way that their neighbors live their other family members live do you ever feel that pull university students do you feel drawn into the malaise of 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 secular humanism and moral relativism that the the people down the hall and 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 in the room next to you 
are living in, that's being taught to you in the lecture theaters? Do you feel this pull? Maybe I should let go of what I believe. And, and the author of Hebrews is saying, no, we must hold fast to our confession. We must hold fast to our uh, confession. Hold on to what we believe. Now, with an understanding of what confession means and what it means to hold fast, let's go back to the beginning of verse 14 where it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. You see, what we believe is that Jesus is our high priest and that he is the Son of God. Of God, that what we believe is something that is quite unique from what other religions believe. I, I feel tempted to, 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 to blend in with the rest of the world every time I tell someone what I do for a living, that I'm a, that I'm a pastor of a church and I live, in, I live in, in Brampton and there's people from all kinds of different religions. There's Sikhs and there's Hindus and there's Muslims and I'm, I find myself getting into conversations with people and I can't believe how often I hear someone and they refer to themselves. They, think they're, they say they're a, a devout Sikh or a devout Muslim or, 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 or a... a, a a, a, a devout Hindu, and they, they say, you know what, you're a Christian, and I'm a, I'm a Sikh, or I'm a Hindu, but all that really matters is what you sincerely believe in your heart. Now, when I'm in those kind of conversations, and it's just a casual, lighthearted, what do you do for a living, what do I do, do for a living? And then they, then they make a statement like that. Now, I could just smile and nod, couldn't I? Well, yeah, you believe that. Or I could say, yeah, but no. It doesn't just matter what you sincerely believe in your heart. I could sincerely believe in my heart that there's a unicorn in the parking lot. That doesn't make it true. Sincerity is, is not the benchmark for whether or not something is true. No, different people believe things sincerely. But, but that doesn't mean that ev what everyone believes is of equal truth or validity. No, we are holding fast to a confession. What we believe in is that we know not just a religious teacher, not just a, a moral instructor. We believe that the Son of God came from heaven down to earth and said, this is how it is. I am God in the flesh. All of the other religions say, well, here's a way that you can maybe get to God. No, no. Christianity says, no, God has come and he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. This is the confession that we hold on to. And the, the Hebrews that were receiving this letter were saying, well, you know what? Maybe the message of Jesus is not that different from, you know, the, the message of the temple and, and, and Jewish Old Testament religion. And the author of Hebrews is saying, it's totally different. And in order to prove that, he uses this metaphor of a high priest. Because the, 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 
the Hebrew people were being drawn away from Jesus to go back to the temple and priests and worship. They were being drawn away from Jesus to think about Moses and, and, all, and the law. And so the author of Hebrews is talking about all of these themes. That's why Moses keeps coming up. That's why priesthood and sacrifice keeps coming up in this book. And, and notice what it says. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heaven. Now, uh, the priests in the Old Testament, they were descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother, and they had this special role. They were supposed to represent humans before God and represent God before humans. And their job was to pass through in the, in the, in the tabernacle and in the temple. Both of those places of worship had three Rooms. You, you, you had uh, the outer court where, where people would come and worship. But then you had, within the outer court, another room that you needed to pass through. And only priests were allowed to pass through there. And that was called the holy place. And then, inside the holy place, there was another room called the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the symbolic presence of God, the glory cloud, dwelled. And so the priests were the only ones who were allowed inside the Holy of Holies. And then only one day a year, one priest, the high priest, was allowed to pass through the veil. So you've got sort of a veil here, a big tall curtain like this, to, to pass through it. And the Ark of the Covenant, the symbolic presence of God, was back there. Now to, to highlight the significance of what the author of Hebrews is, is trying to communicate here, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus, you did hear me correctly. I just asked you to turn in the book of, did he say Leviticus, honey? Yeah, he did. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. It's in the crusty part of your Bible right after Exodus. Now, at the end of Exodus... The tabernacle has been built. And then some people get confused. What is, what is Leviticus about? Listen, Leviticus is like the instruction manual for how to use the tabernacle. That's what it is. So you picture, you know, you buy yourself a new big screen uh, television or something like that. It comes with a manual. Here's how to hook it up to a DVD player. Here's how to make sure you got Netflix and all of these other things happening. Here's how to change the volume and the color contrast. You have a manual to show you how to use this thing. The, the book of Leviticus is the instruction manual for the tabernacle. And in Leviticus chapter 16, we have the instructions for how how to manage the reality that the, that the symbolic presence of God is dwelling in that third room, in the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is. Now pay attention to the context. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. The occasion by which this instruction was given was that Aaron had lost two of his sons, Nadab and Abihu. It's recorded six chapters earlier in Leviticus chapter 10. 
And, and they made a, an unauthorized sacrifice before the Lord. And it's kind of mysterious in Leviticus chapter 10. Well, what was the issue? Well, here it's explained to us. This is why Nadab and Abihu died. Because they went into the Holy of Holies. A sinful human being entering into the presence of a holy God equals disintegration. No questions asked. That's just, that's just the way it works. And so Nadab and Abihu entered into, just sort of wandered into, the, through, through, the, through the outer court, through the Holy of Holies, in, through, sorry, through the holy place, into the Holy of Holies beyond the veil. And they had to be, they had to be carried out and buried. And so now God is giving clear instructions with regards to who is allowed to enter into that place and when are they allowed to do that. Look at verse 11, skip down a little bit. It says, Aaron shall present the bull of a sin offering for himself and he shall make atonement for himself for his house and he shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he, may, so that he does not die. So step one was to take a bull and to have it killed. And what's happening in Aaron's mind and everyone who's watching is, is, is as Aaron lays his hands on the animal as it's about to be killed and burned, what Aaron is saying is what is about to happen to this animal is what should happen to me in the presence of God. Because of my sin, my fate should be the fate of this animal. That's what animal sacrifice means. And then it's killed and then it's burned to show the seriousness of our sin. But if you go back to verse 11, it says a sin offering for himself. So he needs to make an offering for himself as a priest. But his role is not just for himself. His role is for the other people. Look at verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil. So he goes in once for himself and then he goes in again for the people and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the, notice this, because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgression and all of their sins. Now this, this is the imagery that the author of Hebrews, turn back to Hebrews 4, is using to describe who Jesus is as a high priest and what he did. He passed through. But he didn't just pass through from the outer court into the holy place, into the holy of holies. He didn't just pass through a tabernacle. He didn't just pass through a temple. Look back at Hebrews 4. He passed through the heavens. And turn with me quickly to Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verse uh, 24. He passed through the heavens. Actually, it's on the screen. You don't need to turn. Amazing technology. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. When Christ suffered and died on the cross, he was the once for all sacrifice, the ultimate high priest. He didn't need to make a sacrifice for himself like Aaron did. He lived a sinless, perfect life. 
And he made, he laid down that perfect life as that ultimate sacrifice so that we, so there's no longer any separation between us and God. The temple, the tabernacle had all these walls and these curtains saying, don't come any further. But Jesus has passed through the heavens and he is there. I love it. He's in the presence of God on our behalf. He is representing us. Now somebody's like, I thought this was a message on prayer. Listen, this is a message on prayer. But if you're going to understand prayer, you need to understand Jesus. We will never be truly motivated to pray until we truly understand what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. So this is why we can hold fast to our confessions. Verse 15 talks more about our high priest. For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Now this is a verse that sometimes we have a hard difficulty with. When we think about Jesus as our great high priest and, and we think, does he really know what, what I'm going through and the temptations that I face? Well, this verse says that he was tempted in every respect. Can it really mean every? I mean, maybe in AD 62 when this, when this uh, verse was written that maybe, maybe every respect for those people back then, you know, someone stole your donkey. Everyone gets, maybe, maybe Jesus was tempted. That, I mean, but did Jesus ever, was he ever tempted to have road rage? Was he ever tempted to look at internet pornography? Was he, ever, was he ever tempted to be so frustrated on the phone with the cable company on hold for three hours? Did he ever, did he ever was he ever tempted to smoke marijuana? I mean, how can we say that he was tempted in every respect? Jesus didn't know the unique challenges of getting a little older and experiencing the frailty of, of, of having your body deteriorate. We don't, we don't have a record being of Jesus struggling with any sort of illness. Jesus never had, was married or had a parent and, or, or was a parent and had all of those unique challenges. So how can we say that he was tempted in every respect? Do we really have a high priest who understands what it is we're going through? I think one of the problems is that we have a very shallow understanding of what sin is. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Can we bring the next slide up on the screen here? Oh, sorry. The, the one with the diagram? Should, should have reviewed these ahead of time. Sorry, there we go. This is how we tend to think about sin. You know, all the, you know, boasting, sexual sin, lying, arrogance, bitterness, laziness, substance abuse, pornography, gossip. But that, that's really just... A surface, shallow understanding of where sin comes from. Why do we do these things? It's because we're going after something much deeper. We're, we're really, if you were to boil down every single sin, let's go to the next slide. It's really about these, these four things. At the end of the day, we're going after four things. We want power. We want possessions. We're looking for something from people. And, and at the end of the day, we're just looking for pleasure. Why would we steal or why would we lie? Maybe because we're, we want to climb the corporate ladder and we're doing what, whatever it takes. If it means gossiping about another competitor behind their back, whatever it takes to get us out of the cubicle and into the corner office. We want that power. 
We don't want people just to walk up to our cubicle. We want people to have to knock on the door and ask if they can come in. But notice how it's really not even just about power, is it? It's also about people. Because we care about how, what people think about us. Why do we, why do we lie? Do we just enjoy lying? No, that would make you a sociopath. We lie because of people. We're, we're afraid of what people would, how they would judge us if we told them the truth, so we make up some story. We, we boast about the things that, that, that did happen. We elaborate stories so that people will accept us. We, we lie not because we enjoy it. We lie because people. Why, why do we steal? Why do we work too much? Why do we neglect our, our family and our health and our church? Because we want possessions. We, we, we want that, that fancy car. We want those nice clothes. But then again, it all comes back to people, doesn't it? Because we want, we want people to see us in the car and people to see us in the clothes. And then substance abuse. Well, well, how do we end up in those kind of messes? Well, it normally starts with people. But then it ultimately just becomes about pleasure I just at the end of the day I just want to feel good and maybe you've been through this whole this whole gamut you got the job but it didn't satisfy you there wasn't enough pleasure there and people look at you different because you dress so sharp now but that doesn't satisfy and you have all of the toys and you're just you're just giving yourself into some hidden sin right now because you're just after pleasure But even deeper than those four things, there's really two things we're looking for, satisfaction and security. Think about any sin that you're struggling with right now that you might think, Jesus has no idea what I'm going through. If you were to filter it all the way down at the very bottom, the reason why you're doing what you're doing is because you're looking for satisfaction and you're looking for security. Pleasure, satisfaction people, the security that comes from being in a relationship with, with, with other people. Possessions, having enough money gives us satisfaction to enjoy the finer things in life and also gives us a sense of security that I'm going to be okay. Every sin at its base level is rather than looking to God for satisfaction and security, it's looking to something else. Now what does Jesus know? What did Jesus go through? How was he tempted in every Way. Well, the most, you know, the most well-known passage of Jesus being tempted, right? Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, when he's tempted in the wilderness. So it's time for a little bit of audience participation here. Help me out here. What, what was one of the temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness? Just shout it out. Yeah, hunger. Bread into stone, right? Now, have you ever been tempted to turn bread into stone? Or stone into bread, rather, the other way around? It's kind of inefficient to do the other thing. Stones into bread? Have you ever been tempted? Have you ever walked by? You know, you're out for a hike and you're just like, oh, I just want to turn those stones. No, it doesn't really happen. You just go to the grocery store. So Jesus was not tempted in the same way that you were tempted, but really let's follow it down the filter. Why? Why was Satan zeroing in on turning those stones into bread? It was about satisfaction. He hadn't eaten in 40 days. He wanted satisfaction. The same kind of desire that we have. Physically and emotionally and sexually, this desire for satisfaction. Jesus was tempted in every respect. What was one of the other temptations he had? Power, yeah, all the kingdoms of the world, right? 
and all of its wealth and all of its glory. That's, that's satisfaction. He could have bought whatever he wanted. That's security. He could have had all of those things. And there was one other way that Jesus was tempted. Who's got it? Yeah, jump off the, jump off the, 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 the top of the tower, right? That was, that was security. Can you trust God to make sure that not one of your feet would, be, would strike a stone? You see, Jesus was tempted in every way and yet without sin. When you follow sin down to its ultimate essence, Jesus knows what it was like to be tempted to seek satisfaction and security from something other than God, which is the essence of what sin is. Now let's go to that quotation from, from C.S. Lewis. When we think about, um, that's the, the blue uh, letter uh, slide that, that uh, came up a little bit earlier. Yeah. So C.S. Lewis said this, You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. In the next slide. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, but is also the only man who knows, the full, knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Jesus knows what it is to be tempted in every respect. We, we give in to temptation so quickly. We don't understand how strong temptation actually is. Minute by minute, moment by moment, hour by hour, the temptation gets stronger and stronger. Jesus was tempted moment by moment, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, year by year. He was tempted and without sin. And so, because we have this high priest who has passed through heaven and is, and is tempted in every way, even though he came from heaven and he has gone back up to heaven to represent us there, he is right here, right now, where the rubber hits the road and he perfectly understands what we are going through in our own personal struggles and temptations. So he encourages us to hold fast to what we believe and then secondly, he enables us to draw near to God with boldness. He enables us to draw near to God with boldness. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Now, for, for an old, someone versed in the Old Testament who was raised in the Old Testament like these Hebrew Christians would have been to hear this idea of drawing near to God. We as New Testament believers, you know, the book of James, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. We talk about it in our worship services, draw near. But for someone who was raised in the Old Testament scriptures and was just getting to know Jesus, this concept of drawing near to God would have blown their mind. Because God himself told people not to draw near. I mean, Leviticus 16 was all about don't draw near. The whole problem with Nadab and Abihu was they drew near. This wasn't something they were, they were supposed to do. This was a once a year thing. 
Moses at the burning bush, God sets the bush on fire. He calls Moses to himself. And then what does he say? He says, don't come near. Look it up, Exodus chapter 3. He tells him, don't come near. And now on this side of the cross, because we have a high priest who has passed through and has made the sacrifice necessary for our sin, we are now invited to draw near. On October 17th, you are, you are invited as a church family to draw near to the throne of grace, to pray together as a church. And we can draw near with confidence. With confidence. One of the things I love about uh, being a part of a church in a diverse city like, uh, like Brampton and like, like Mississauga, and I know Ottawa is a very diverse city, so you have people, they're, they're new Canadians. And uh, maybe, maybe this was your experience, maybe you are doing this for someone else right now, that, that when someone comes to Canada, oftentimes it's one family member who goes first, right? It's a father, it's a mother, it's a sister, it's a brother, it's an, un- an aunt or an uncle, and then that one person comes and, and goes through the process, and then what do they do? They sponsor the rest of the family to come. And loved ones, we have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he's, he's made us part of the family, and he has gone to represent us. And so we can walk through customs and we can have our our document of landing and we can be sure, we can walk up with confidence and say, I belong here. I'm going to be a citizen here because someone has gone ahead of me and done all of the grunt work and the paperwork with the lawyers and the immigration officers and, and I can with confidence come to this country. And maybe you're doing that for a family member right now. Maybe you're here right now because another family member did that for you. Loved ones, this is what Christ has done in order to make us citizens of heaven so that we can draw near with confidence. But maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. And when you think about life after this life, there's a big question mark. You you don't know what's after this life. When you think about meaning in this life right now, there's another big question mark. Well, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, if you understand who he is as your priest and what he accomplished for you on his cross, then you can can get answers to those questions. What's life after this life? It's eternity in, in heaven with God. You were made to live in the presence of God. That's the reason why you were created, but sin got in the way. But Jesus made a way to deal with sin by dying on the cross for you. And so you can know for sure with confidence what happens after this life. And not only that, you can have a new sense of purpose and meaning in this life. To not just hope to relate to God someday in the future like other religions teach. But you can live in a relationship, a personal relationship with God right here, right now. But we need, to, we need to understand that, that this passage talking about drawing near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and to find grace, we need to know what those terms are. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Mercy is getting caught with your hand in the, in the cookie jar but, but not receiving a punishment for, for what you have done. That's what mercy is. Grace is just someone handing you the cookie jar. 
Grace is just someone giving you a gift. So mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is receiving what you don't deserve. And God wants to do both of those things. He doesn't just want to make us neutral by removing our sin. No, he, he wants to completely turn the table. So he withholds the judgment that we deserve for our sin. But then he also pours on all of the blessings that come with being a child of God. And that is open and available to you today. It says that, that you can draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. But it's also important for us, you always need to read God's word in context here. The author of Hebrews, almost just called him the Apostle Paul, the author of Hebrews here is writing to a group of Christians. This isn't an evangelism letter. He's not writing to unbelievers. You don't say don't stop believing to someone until they've started believing. They've got to hold fast to their confession. They've already made a confession. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They believe that he died to pay the penalty for their sin. And notice here in the context, he is telling Christians that they need mercy and grace. Too often we think, you know, I was living as a sinner and then someone explained to me the gospel and I became a Christian and I received God's mercy and grace and it was so awesome and now I'm just living my life. And mercy and grace is like a past tense thing. And, and now, now, my, now my life is great. Listen, that's just not true. I mean, life as a Christian is really hard. It's, a, it's messy sometimes, isn't it? We, we get... We get caught in, as the book of Hebrews says, the sin that so easily entangles, it's difficult to run with endurance the race that's set before us. And listen, mercy and grace is not just some sort of one-time event that God does. We are commanded to draw near to God, to receive mercy and grace every moment of every day. And so listen, that's true in the life of an individual believer and loved ones, listen, it's also true in the life of a church. You know, it's just so exciting. You know, I, I've, I've been, uh, I'm prayer partners with Ray. We talk just about every week on Skype and my hair is starting to look more and more like his every week, I'm not sure. And it's been so amazing just to go back years and years and to see how this church has grown, not just numerically, but spiritually. To just to, to sit down and to some of you guys, some of you guys I've known for years and years, I can see, I can see that you're growing. It's so clear that God's at work here. But listen, we never grow beyond our need of mercy and grace. And as, listen, one of the hardest things, this happened, this happened at our church. Listen, this, this fall, we hit an all-time high in Sunday morning attendance. And then we hit a two-year low in prayer meeting attendance. That's just not right. Like, if, if you want to take a, a lesson or a stroll through pastoral discouragement, that's it. Because... Sunday morning is one thing, but, but to come together and to desperately seek God's face, to earnestly implore him for mercy and grace, to continue to work in our lives as individuals and as a church, that is the furnace. 
That turns up the heat and the spiritual intensity and the love among brothers and sisters and the outreach out into the community. But the motivation is not guilt. The motivation is not numbers. The motivation is understanding who Jesus Christ is. Because I can't as a pastor say, well, the reason why our prayer meeting attendance is bad is because we didn't make a good enough announcement and I wasn't really strongly challenging the people enough. No, the reason why our prayer meeting wasn't well attended was because I was not doing an effective job of pointing people to Jesus Christ. Because he is the motivation to pray. So October 17th, loved ones, I'm not going to be there. I'm going to be back in Brampton. If you are a part of this home church, make October 17th a priority. Get your, I don't really like phones out in church, but get your phone out right now and put it into your calendar. Prayer meeting, October 17th. Not motivated because Ted said so or because Ray said so. Motivated because of who Jesus is and reminded that every moment of every day we need his mercy and his grace. And so let's draw near together uh, in a prayer. And so often, unfortunately, prayer, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on back. So often when we think about prayer in church, it's, it's, we think about the, it's just transition moments. Oh, let's get everyone to close their eyes so that the worship team can get up or off the stage. That's not what prayer is. Go ahead, come on, get on the stage. Go ahead, get on the stage. We want you guys to be able to pray too. Listen, prayer is not a transition moment. It's a transformation moment. It's, it's not a moment of let's, let's get on the stage or off the stage. Let's, it's, it's let's get our hearts ready before the Lord. And so everyone, listen, fold up your Bible, put your Ben away. This is, this is, let's, get, let's get ready. Sometimes prayer can happen from the front and we, don't, we just think, oh, someone else is praying. I'm just passively. No, would you pray with me? And let's pray that, that let's pray for prayer. Let's pray that, that as families, that we would be more devoted to praying together as, as families. Let's pray that, that as individual believers, that we would regularly draw near and let's, let's pray that as a church that we would keep the heat on and that there would be an atmosphere of prayerful intensity and warmth for the glory of God. And so let's pray right now. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we are praying right now in the name of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who is seated at your right hand right now and is representing us. He is there on our behalf and now we have your ear, O Lord. As as sinful humans stumbling and struggling through life, Lord, but who have been rescued and redeemed and transformed from the inside out, Lord, we come to you when we ask for mercy and grace. I know that in a room this size, Lord God, that there's going to be a number of people who are struggling, who are entangled with besetting sin. God, I pray that you would shower your mercy and your grace on them. Lord, I know that you are at work here, God, and that this is a city that needs you and that needs strong churches. And so, God, I pray that this church and other gospel-loving, gospel-proclaiming churches in this great city would band together in the cause of Christ and making you known. 
And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would work and that you would move in our hearts. We pray for prayer. We pray for eyes that are fixed on the Son of God, for the glory of God, that we would love you, that we would receive your love for us, that we would extend that love to our brothers and sisters and into this community and into this city. God, I pray that you would foster a culture of prayer in this church that's rooted on the foundation of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Let's stand together, let's sing. We call on the name of the Lord.